Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Our guest today is Timothy Searchinger. Tim is a research scholar at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University in the Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy Program. Though trained as a lawyer, Tim's work today encompasses ecology, agronomy, and economics, and analyzing the challenges of feeding a growing world population while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. He was a lead author on a groundbreaking series of articles in Science Magazine that offered the first calculations of greenhouse gas emissions associated with land use changes due to biofuels and the potential effects on food consumption. He's also lead author of a series of reports for the World Resources Institute, the World Bank, and other organizations on how to meet global feed needs in 2050 while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. He works across the world and currently has projects in Rwanda, Colombia, Thailand, Vietnam, and Denmark on evaluating the potential for livestock or crop improvements to reduce emissions and protect forests. Tim Searchinger, welcome to Manifold. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So Tim, you and I are old friends, and uh, we hadn't seen each other for quite a while. And to be honest, how I came to bring you on the show today was I was looking at the New York Times in November of last year, and there is a huge story on the cover titled, Palm Oil Was Supposed to Help Save the Planet, Instead It Unleashed a Catastrophe about destruction of forests in Borneo as a result of changes in U.S. biofuels policy. And uh, in that article, you were profiled as the person who, probably before anybody else, realized that this change was going to be a catastrophe. It was a well-meaning change in policy that had unintended consequences. Can you tell us what's happening in Borneo? Well, uh, Borneo is obviously a naturally highly forested uh, place with very wet, very Uh, carbon-dense and biologically diverse forests. And it is now being converted, has been heavily converted to oil palm uh, production. It's also been heavily deforested for timber purposes too. A lot of it is for oil palm production. And and oil palm has become the cheapest way of supplying the world's growing demand for vegetable oil. And some of that vegetable oil is going to meet rising food uh, uh, requests. Uh, when people go from eating a dollar a day to two dollars a day, the first thing they do to uh, diversify their diets is eat more vegetable oil. But some of that vegetable oil is going to supply biodiesel, uh, you know, one of the big sources of biofuels. The basic story is, is the world's increased demand for vegetable oil, uh, including biodiesel, means you've got to produce it somewhere. And one of the big places to produce it is by converting tropical forests in Borneo and that has huge compl- uh, implications, large releases of carbon dioxide, the, the most potent greenhouse gas, uh, very sharp biodiversity effects, and then a lot of effects on indigenous people who are living there. Can I ask, uh, the carbon release, is that from burning off the jungle? Yeah, so basically uh, vegetation is 50% carbon. So uh, when you see a tree, what you're looking at, 50% of the of the uh, physical quality of the tree, the non-water part, is carbon. And then on top of that, soils store a huge amount of carbon. So soils and vegetation store four times as much carbon as there is in the atmosphere. And uh, about a third of the carbon in the atmosphere that's been added by human beings has been through land use change caused by 
primarily agricultural expansion uh, over the last 150 years. And so when you clear forests, you put that carbon into the atmosphere. And the, the crops that you're growing then in that agricultural land, that those crops are fixing carbon from the air in order to grow, but then I guess eventually you may burn them so that carbon gets back into the atmosphere? Yeah. So the typical crop, of course, uh, is only growing a, a little bit each year, and then you plow it up. And we, the carbon that is absorbed by the crops, we eat it. And uh, so actually every time we breathe, we're breathing out carbon dioxide that was actually fixed uh, by a crop. Uh, so some of the carbon dioxide is going to feed people. When in an oil palm, there is a tree that's created and that stores some carbon. And then the oil palm, of course, is also heavily carbon. Now, the benefit of using vegetable oils for, for fuel is that you displace uh, fossil carbon, you displace um, diesel or, or gasoline, and that gives you a greenhouse gas benefit. But the cost is that you've lost all of this carbon that would be stored there otherwise. Uh, one way of thinking about biofuels is the benefit is displacing fossil fuels, but the cost is whatever you're not producing on that land as a result. And the historic error with biofuels was that people basically treated land as free. They, they didn't count any costs to the loss of the carbon that would otherwise be uh, on that land, including the carbon that would be being produced and being consumed by people. So in a, in a, over a really long period of time, you can get a greenhouse gas benefit uh, from using biofuels. But for decades, uh, you're going to increase carbon in the atmosphere due to the loss of the native vegetation. What was the policy change in the U.S. that led to this deforestation in Borneo? Yeah, so the big, well, and, and, and by the way, that it's not all due to U.S. Uh, biofuel policy. So first of all, we have growing world demand for vegetable oil. And then on top of that, Europe has had a large increase in biofuels too. And most of Europe's is due to biodiesel, whereas in the U.S. we're primarily using ethanol from corn which causes other problems, but less problems in, um, than in, you have in Borneo. So uh, Borneo has been, essentially what happened is that the world figured out how to produce vegetable oil at a high yield from oil palm. And that made that a good place to produce it. The policy change in the US was mainly uh, in uh, 2007, December of 2007, when Congress adopted a huge increase in the biofuel mandate. So we've been subsidizing biofuels for quite a while, uh, but there was a multifold increase in the biofuel mandate, which basically requires that increasing percentages of our transportation fuel uh, be co-blended with some kind of biofuel, and eventually up to about uh, 14%. And biodiesel is one of those fuels. In fact, it's... it's, it's um, has a kind of preference in particular. But do, do you have a breakdown? So for a particular hectare in Borneo that they burned off the for the jungle in order to start growing stuff there, how much of that demand is response to U.S. biofuel policy versus, you know, people going from $1 a day to $2 a day and needing some cooking oil? Uh, probably actually a minority of the total amount of deforestation is due to U.S. Uh, biofuel policy. I, nobody really knows the exact percentages because these things all get blended in one place or another. Uh, one of the questions is, you know, ha, would the world have been better able to meet the demand for vegetable oil without also the increased demand for biodiesel? 
So there's certainly a significant amount of increased deforestation, but nobody really knows. And for, for, for Borneo per se, Europe has probably been a bigger driver because they're even more into biodiesel than in the U.S. However, probably Europe wouldn't have adopted this biofuel mandate if the U.S. hadn't been going for it. But, but the non-biofuel part of it goes back to what Bernie said the other day, which was that population increases in the third world are leading to a huge environmental or carbon impact. Yeah, exactly. So, so our population has been growing a lot. And right now we're about seven and a half billion. We're going to go to about 10 billion by 2050. So you have to provide that food. And then on top of that, you have decreasing numbers of just horribly poor people, or at at least decreasing percentages. As I said, when people are able to eat just a little bit better, uh, one of the first things they do is they try to fry their food or do something to increase the tastiness of it. And vegetable oil is one of the things you, you use. And so there's been a particularly large increase in the demand for vegetable oil. So the combination of those two drives the demand for, for vegetable oil to go up. I mean, in the U.S., we never think about it, right? I mean, you know, you think about frying, but you don't think about the price of vegetable oil or whatever. And you have no idea if, you've just, if increased demand has greatly increased the price. I, I seem to recall that in some poor, relatively poor countries like Indonesia or places like that, if the government raises the price of cooking oil, that riots ensue. So I guess, you know, that's very important to the, you know, their level of well-being. Exactly. Exactly right. So we, you know, we probably aren't, I, I, I don't think we're increasing significantly the consumer demand for vegetable oil per person, uh, but we are doing it through biodiesel. So one of the general ideas that comes through in your work is that there are trade-offs and that land use is effectively a zero-sum game. You know, you could use land for growing food, for livestock, you can use it for wood pulp, timber, but you increase one at the expense of decreasing the others. I, I think that's uh, mostly accurate. The real issue is that people who have looked at these changes count the benefit of what they're going to be producing and not the cost. And so it might get better. So the, the, the basic way to think of it is this. Uh, we, have, uh, we need more food, about 50% more food by 2050. And we need more carbon storage. Almost every strategy for solving climate change assumes we're actually going to increase the amount of carbon stored in vegetation and soils. Given that fact, but we also have a fixed amount of land. We're not making any more land. The only possible way to do that is to increase the efficiency of using land. So what that means is if you have land that's really good at growing forest and would be bad at producing corn, you want it growing forest. But vice versa, if it's really good at producing corn and would be bad at producing forest, you want it producing corn. And so the, it is possible that when you change a use from one to another, you're able to increase the total uh, benefits, the total output. But just changing one form to another by itself doesn't actually do that. So in the case of biofuels, if you, you stop using land for food and you st- start using it for energy, you get a benefit in terms of displaced fossil fuels. But the bottom line is you increase the demand on the world's land. So there's gonna be a cost. And the, we can go into it, but the, the, the fundamental error that was made uh, in bioenergy was the belief that land was free. 
and the typical analysis that assumes that bioenergy is good for the planet would be identical if you assumed that literally land was created to grow the biofuel production. You know, you, you increase demand for biofuels in the U.S. instead of using Iowa or Michigan corn land or soybean land, instead of doing that, you actually cause land to emerge out of the Pacific and grow it there. That would actually have the exact same calculation uh, according to the, the people who are kind of generating estimates of benefits for biofuels as using the best land in Iowa or, or Michigan. And obviously there's a difference. One is has a big cost because you're not producing food and one is you get additional land. So the, the, the basic issue is land has a cost. It has an opportunity cost. I mean, use it one way, the cost is not using it for another. And the simple, simple point is you have to count that opportunity cost. So there are arguments that people who are pro-biofuels are going to give. And I want to try out an argument on you. I think it is going to bring up some points you just made, but here's the argument. Biofuels are key to a clean energy future. Unlike fossil fuels, they offer zero net carbon emissions opportunity for creating energy. When you grow biofuels, plants suck carbon out of the atmosphere when you burn biofuel plants, some of that carbon gets back into the atmosphere. So there's zero net emissions. So repeat the cycle, you always end up with a net zero carbon emissions. What's wrong with that argument? Yeah, well, there are a few ways of saying what's wrong with that argument. One is what I just said, is that it assumes the cost of using land is zero, right? So it says, look, to grow those plants, you need an acre of land. And uh, where in that analysis are they accounting the cost of that land. That land, if you're not using it for biofuels, could either be a forest or storing carbon in some way, or it could be producing food. And if you produce it food there, you increase the capacity to have forest storing carbon somewhere else. So one way of saying it is that analysis treats land as free. But there's another way of thinking about it as a kind of a pure math error. So basically, when you, when you burn a biofuel, you're emitting carbon. I mean, what literally comes out of the pipe of the car is carbon. And it's, in fact, for, for in the case of ethanol, you're going to emit on overall about one and a half times as much carbon as when you have gasoline, because the amount that comes out of the tailpipe is the same, but actually about a third, there's another 50% that goes off when you uh, ferment starch into ethanol. So we meant that corn to ethanol. So you actually have more carbon being emitted. So the theory is that that carbon is offset by the growth of a plant, okay? So bioenergy, if it's gonna work at all, works as an offset. Now here's an example, let me give you an example of where that would be true. Imagine for some reason or other you have a bare acre of land and it's gonna remain bare. Somebody just likes to, likes to go out and plow it and grow nothing for some reason or other. And now you're gonna say, no, no, instead of doing nothing with it, we're gonna grow plants and turn them into a biofuel. Those plants absorb additional carbon, and then that carbon, that additional plant growth offsets the carbon emitted by burning the biofuel. But the key requirement for any offset is something be additional. So if you have an employee and that employee works overtime and you say, I'm gonna offset your overtime with vacation time, you can't say, well, here, I'm gonna offset it by letting you take the vacation time you've already earned. <laughs> you have to give them additional vacation time. So if you want plant growth to offset the carbon emitted by burning it, you have to have additional plant growth. So in the example I gave, there was additional plant growth. But what happens if you're just taking a cornfield that was already producing corn? It was already absorbing carbon from the atmosphere. 
And just diverting that to biofuels doesn't offset anything because it doesn't create any additional plant growth. And what it does do is simply divert plants that are going into food into biofuels, and then you gotta replace the, the, the plants somewhere else. So that's the difference. It, it, the, the basic error was this belief that all plants are free and an offset, but when you use plants for one purpose, you're not using them for another, and only additional plant growth actually constitutes an offset. You convinced Steve? Well, I, I think it's obvious that you want to have as much biomass as possible because it's mostly carbon. And so to the extent that you're growing stuff on the land, that's great because you've sequestered some carbon there, right? For free. But if you chop it down and burn it, and the average amount of biomass on that land over the course of the next year is reduced, I, I see the point, right? I mean, you're not actually sequestering as much carbon there as you could be. If we allowed you to grow the biggest, most massive trees possible on that land, that's probably the best possible use of that land to sequester carbon, right? And if then I built little greenhouses on top and grew my biofuel stuff up top, then I guess we'd be okay, right? Then then I'd both I'd be using land both productively to sequester carbon and to produce some stuff to run my car or cook my vegetables in. But that's not apparently what people are doing. And and to clear the land in the first place, they're burning down some beautiful jungle that was sequestering tons of carbon. And if you're producing food, the food is actually that food absorbs carbon. And the question is, why don't we think that growing food is good for the climate? Why isn't that a carbon sequestration strategy? Well, the only reason it isn't is that we actually eat that food and then we emit the, we, we emit the carbon. Yeah. If we, if we grew the food and we just left it lying around so it was not floating in the atmosphere absorbing photons, that would be fine. But what we actually do is we eat it and you know, eventually it gets back into the atmosphere potentially, right? I don't know. If exactly. But the point is, so we can actually solve climate change to some extent if everyone stops eating. Nobody has to offer to do that. And, and, and we make this as a joke, but there are actually, uh, we, I had a paper in science in 2015 where I showed that the calculations that the federal government does to find some greenhouse gas benefits from ethanol literally count the fact that they, an estimate in an economic model that much of the food diverted to biofuels is not replaced. As a result, people eat less. As a result, people breathe out less carbon dioxide. And the greenhouse gas benefit from people breathing out less carbon dioxide is the benefit that they attribute to ethanol. And unfortunately, the people who eat less when we divert plants to ethanol uh, are not me. So I, I, people can't see me, I'm a little overweight. The world would be better off if as a result I ate less. But actually, the people who respond to higher prices are the world's poorest people. Steve's gone keto, and he claims he's eating less as a result. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm very green from keto. No, I mean, I mean, if you compete in the marketplace for carbon, pricing out poor people so that they literally starve and die so that I can drive my SUV, uh, that is very green, right? I've helped the environment. It's a great greenhouse gas strategy if uh, you don't care about people at all. Right. I mean, it's, it's very similar to what Bernie was saying, which is that um, the fewer people... Uh, the better off the environment, right? And 
Um, that growing up in the seventies, we we took this very seriously. I remember pop, overpopulation being a huge thing we would discuss in school, and it would be part of our social studies learning or so, even science learning class, um, where we would say, "Yeah, overpopulation is one of the biggest problems facing humanity." And it, it's kind of obvious that if each of us has a non-zero carbon footprint, which is inevitable, having more people is just bad, right, for global warming. But of course, there are different ways to deal with the population. So the good way to deal with population growth is to educate girls and uh, lower mortality rates for children. And as a result, people decide to have fewer babies. And that's happened in most of the world. And that's a good way. The bad way to do it is to uh, make price, food prices really high that they die. Now, in the, in the real world, of course, actually very few people, well, very few adults actually uh, die because of reduced food consumption. Actually, some children die because of uh, insufficient. So in that regard, you're right. Maybe there is a greenhouse gas benefit to increase child mortality. Yeah. If if you are a crazy right-wing economist, you might say, oh, the incentives, if I make food really expensive, the incentive maybe is to have, maybe, I'm not sure this is really true, but is to have a smaller family and it does curb population growth or something. I don't know, but... <laughs> yeah. Hopefully no one's actually saying that. I mean, the interesting thing, of course, is that actually a higher child mortality tends to lead to uh, higher population growth because people overcompensate by having more, more children. So one of the good news is that uh, one, of the, one of the best things you could do uh, to actually even uh, reduce climate change is literally uh, keep the children alive and educate girls uh, and provide access to family planning to the people in Africa who are the only people who uh, are still having large numbers of children. But uh, if, if I'm not misremembering, it's the access to family planning part that got Bernie in trouble. Does anybody remember what he actually said? He's, I don't remember the context of the claim. Was this a speech he gave recently? He was, I don't know if it was a speech or some just public interaction. He basically kind of said, like, if you want to save the environment, you need to limit the population. I think he might have used the word abortion. I, I don't remember. But um, I just saw it, you know, you say, you know how you see these outrage things on your Twitter feed, like, oh, Bernie said this. But I think the basic point that limiting human population is kind of good for the environment, I think that's true. How he said it, I don't necessarily endorse. The, the good news is that almost everywhere in the world, actually, uh, people have reduced their fertility rates to replacement levels or below. And we're going to continue to have population growth in Asia due to the fact that that happened only too recently. And as the children who were born in the last few decades age, their population will grow. But the, the one place in the world that still has a lot more than replacement level children is in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's basically because that's the place in the world where we still have very high uh, infant mortality and where we don't educate girls into high school. And by doing those two things, uh, you pretty much every culture in the world, people voluntarily reduce their fertility rates. So there is a kind of a win-win for humanity there. I was just in Nigeria, actually, um, in cities, importantly, and I was talking to some of my colleagues there, and they actually point out there's a pretty substantial difference between urban areas and rural areas there. People in urban areas now are having three, maybe four kids, which is a significant reduction. But in the rural areas, it was still on the order of seven or eight kids. Uh, I think Niger right now has the highest birth rate in the world, and it's on the average of nine kids per female. So having never been to Africa, but having looked at these numbers, it's it's hard for me not to predict a real crisis and disaster in the next few decades for Africa, because who? how are these people going to feed themselves? It, it just seems like uh, 
it's really outpacing the population growth is outpacing economic growth in a lot of these places. So the per capita GDP, I wonder if it's going up, it may be going down. I asked that question actually when I was there, uh, what the growth rate was. And I think I didn't get a straight answer because people didn't trust the numbers out of the government, but yeah. it's looked in order of a couple percentage points, but definitely below uh, population growth. I think if you, you know, even though for the upper class in India and upper, maybe middle class, depending on how you define it, uh, there's been successful economic development. I think if you look at the numbers of the people who were sort of closer to the bottom, and by bottom, I mean maybe bottom 25% of the Indian population, I think things have not been getting better. Like if you look at malnutrition numbers, so it's it's pretty scary. Yeah, I mean the uh, I mean actually Africa went through a period of significant economic growth for a while, and it's kind of a question of what's going on there, and it's it's tapered off a little bit, and there are I think real opportunities there, but th there's no question that the extremely high rate of population growth is a huge problem, and the good news is that when countries do reduce their populations, they tend to get an economic dividend because you have you find yourself with a larger percentage of the population in the productive years. You, you have fewer people that you have to care for who are too young to work or too old to work, at least at that time. And so you get these big economic dividends. And hopefully by the time then that population ages, you've, you've had this huge amount of economic growth in between. So this is an opportunity. And the other thing is that it, it, even the poorest countries in the world that have actually gone to the effort to educate their, their girls have pretty much all had huge reductions in fertility rates. Some is too. Urban population growth helps too, but I mean, this is just one of the one of the many issues. Yeah. So I want to get into a a topic you discuss in some of your articles, which is the calorie gap. Let me know if I get this right. You say between two thousand and six and twenty fifty, there's a calorie gap of approximately uh, six thousand five hundred trillion kilocalories uh, per year. So we need about a seventy percent increase in available food in those uh, 44 years. Can we define what you mean by gap? So, Well, let's let Tim define it. Yeah, and so by the way, we updated, that's an older paper, and we, we now have a new one where the, we focus on 2010 to 2050, where the calorie gap is 56%. And what this is, the gap is the number of calories produced uh, in 2010, globally, by the world's farmers, and are made available, let's put it that way, and the amount, the number of calories that are going to be needed to feed the world in 2050 under business as usual, if, uh, if kind of trends continue along kind of projected lines. And that means that in 2050, the world's farmers would need to produce 56% more food. So you did, you, you did the calories per capita in 2010, and you want to maintain that? Yeah. Well, we, we actually, we, we do more than maintain uh, calories in 2010. We somewhat improve them as the world's uh, poor people get wealthier. And in fact, we actually added just a small amount, which would be the amount that would be needed to make sure that nobody is hungry. Okay. So you have a, you have a basic requirement level of, I don't know, is it like 2000 calories or 1500 calories per day per person or? Yeah. And it's actually kind of, it's, it's usually like 2200, but actually the food available meaning the food that is in theory available to, be co to consume needs to be around 3,000 calories because there's a lot of waste. Okay. And so the gap is relative to that. And you're building some economic growth because you're assuming people are going to start consuming meats. And yeah. Although we are, and we have an increased consumption of meat. Uh, and that's, again, a kind of a, that's based on the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization's projected diets. And it could actually be much larger than, than that. They're, they were relatively conservative. 
because even in 2010, uh, 60% of the world's 10 billion people still didn't consume very much meat or milk. And uh, more, but not that much. And so even if on, in that scenario, you have to produce basically more or less 50% more food per year. And then the question is, how do you do that? And part of the challenge is that, and this again comes back to the biofuels, almost everyone who looks at that, even without biofuels, predicts that we're actually going to have to clear more land because we have to increase yields at a higher rate than our historic rate. And almost every climate strategy requires that we actually reduce the amount of agricultural land. So when you then add a biofuel demand on top of that, it's potentially completely disqualifying. And let me give you an, a couple ideas about that. So it's not just liquid biofuels, it's also just cutting down trees and putting them in power plants that people are talking about, or, and, or fast growing trees and things like that. So there are a lot of people who say, look, we need to get 20% of the world's energy from bioenergy in 2050. You say, okay, well, what, what percentage of the world's harvested plants today would that require? So we harvest plants for crops, we harvest wood, we have grass eaten by livestock, and we actually harvest a fair amount of crop residues. So of all of those that we harvest today, how much of that would have to be used to produce 20% of the world's energy in 2050? And the answer is all of it. 100% of all of our harvested biomass has just enough energy to produce maybe 20% of the energy demand in 2050. And so you immediately should realize if somebody is telling you that that's a good idea, when on top, the fact is that we already need to produce 50% more of just about all plant material uh, to meet growing needs. And we need to do it without clearing more land. You could probably understand that somebody must have made a big mistake. <laughs> and, the, and the mistake was that they basically treated land as free. They always double count land. So in these projections, they're basically saying, hey, I could use that hectare of land, that acre of land, both for food and for biofuels. They just don't deal with a fixed land budget. And, and let me give you one reason, one intuitive reason to understand this. So people have this belief that something that's renewable is free. I have a tree, I cut it down, I burn it, the tree regrows, I can burn my tree and have it too. So what's wrong with that thing? Why isn't that free? Well, think of something else that's renewable, which is your paycheck. So you're academics, you're making the big money. So I say to you, you know, hey, Steve, uh, give me your paycheck. It's not going to cost you anything. You're going to get another paycheck next month. It's renewable. But you're a smart guy, and you realize that if you give me your paycheck, you can't use it for food, you can't use it for rent, you can't put some in the bank. The cost of giving me your paycheck is not using it for these other purposes. Well, that's exactly the same true of plant growth. If you use plant growth for energy, you're not using it for food and wood products and carbon storage. And if you want to be richer, you got to get a bigger paycheck. You don't just divert your existing paycheck to something else. And that's basically the error that was made with bioenergy. So I'm reminded of the prophetic science fiction movie Soylent Green. Does everybody remember Soylent Green with Charlton Heston? <laughs> yeah, I've never seen it. Oh, but, you've uh, got to watch it. I know, I know. So in the movie Soylent Green, the whole world, except for very, very rich people, is reduced to eating these Soylent crackers that 
the government produces. And I think originally they wanted them to be made of soy and lentils, which is why they were called soylent. But I think in the movie they actually say that it's grown with algae. It's made, they're made of algae, which is grown in the sea. And of course, then that is a kind of new free source of land, right? You grow the, the calories in the ocean. But of course, we all know what Soylent Green ends up being. It's actually made of recycled people. And uh, that, that's the big reveal. Oh, I, I'm sorry if I spoiled it for you. But the issue there was, of course, the free land was you start farming, you start growing algae in the oceans. And then that, that's the way you get the calories you need. Well, actually, you know, so algae uh, could be one of the ways that we meet some food needs. And uh, growing in the ocean is difficult because of lots of practical reasons. Growing on land still takes a, lot of, a fair amount of land and water, but it's more efficient than other things. But one day, maybe algae could be a, source of, a good source of animal feed. Uh, and it's also potentially a source of fish oil quality oil that you can use. So there could be some values, but, it, but, but it's not going to feed. It's still going to be small. <laughs> of course, you can't predict technological change. And often we think there are insurmountable problems, and then there's some disruptive technology that arises. We now have very effective and radically powerful tools for genetic engineering. And it seems quite possible that over the next 50 years or so, these tools will allow us to develop plants that are, say, 500 times more effective at producing calories for human beings than existing plants. And we may also be able to engineer algae of a certain kind that could provide food for people. So aren't you assuming that there's no disruptive technological change in your calculations? Well, in a way, we're kind of relying on some disruptive technological change because when we try to kind of come up with solutions, you have to increase yields at a faster than historical rate. Now, historically, a lot of those yield gains came from just adding synthetic fertilizer, uh, from doubling irrigation area, and those aren't really doable anymore for environmental reasons and just fundamental limitations. We already use the fertilizer. So it's all going to have to come from being smarter. And so uh, I'm a big, big fan of crop breeding and using genetic techniques, et cetera, et cetera. But it's going to be it, it, 500 times is, a, is, is not in the cards. Uh, I mean, we, we'd be happy to have, you know, 70 percent. Um, but the other thing, again, when you're thinking of the biofuel side, so I'm in favor of all of that. And in, in, in the best possible world, we still free up land and then we could benefit from climate by reforesting that land. But remember, the, the other point is that there are other ways to make energy. So uh, bioenergy is peculiarly inefficient. So uh, sugarcane ethanol, which is the most um, efficient biofuel, converts 0.2% of the energy in solar radiation into usable energy. Not 2%, 0.2%. And you put a solar cell out there today, and you'll get 20%. So even if you were foolish enough to say, really, what I want to do to, for energy is devote some of the world's best agricultural land. Even if you use, cover that agricultural land in fuel cells, you'll get 100 times more usable energy, even on that really good land. And of course, uh, fuel cell, uh, uh, solar cells have gone up in efficiency a lot, a lot more, uh, a lot faster even than crops. So the, the point is that uh, photosynthesis is necessary to, for food, it's necessary for vegetation, for, for forests, but it's really inefficient. I mean, photosynthesis is a 3.5 billion year old technology. <laughs> and it's improved only a little bit. And when you, if you, all you wanna do is make usable energy, 
you don't have to do it through photosynthesis. You use chemical means to get your energy from the sun. And that's why, you know, we've even in the last 10, what, 12 years, we've increased the efficiency of, of even off-the-shelf solar cells 300%. And uh, so that's basically the story. Solar cells, solar energy is just another, or photosynthesis is just a solar energy. It's just a peculiarly inefficient one. And it also requires a lot of water, a lot of land, a lot of things we need for other purposes. So we may, for example, I think we're much, much more likely to be able to come up with liquid solar fuels, than, which will be dramatically more efficient than significantly more efficient biofuels. You know, I wasn't saying there's a 500-fold increase, but about a 5x increase, right, 500%. And so there's got to be an assumption about uh, yields, right, built into your calculations. And are you assuming any significant increase in productivity? Because given what we've seen over the last couple of years in genetic engineering, it seems not implausible that you get something like a 5x productivity increase uh, from plants, agricultural plants. And how would that affect your calculation and your, your talk about a calorie uh, gap? Well, uh, so first of all, we, are, we, we start with a baseline assumption of roughly historic yield growth rates. And that's what I think may be wrong. Well, that may be wrong, but actually right now achieving that seems hard because actually growth rates in the last 20 years have been lower. And, and remember, a lot of those growth rates were due to just adding synthetic fertilizer and doubling the area of irrigation. So, we, so in other words, we need more smart farming. We need those genetic breakthroughs just to achieve that. And if we get more, great, even better. So in the best case scenario, we do that. Now, actually, the other thing, this is getting into my food work, but two-thirds of the world's agricultural land is actually pastureland. And 40% of that, an area almost as much as all the world's cropland, is pastureland that was created out of forest. So actually, another really, really big, uh, important thing to do is to increase the yields of pastureland. And that also can be done to some extent with... Uh, uh, breeding, but most of it is just better management, probably. Um, so all of those things are incredibly important. And let's imagine in the best case scenario, we actually uh, reduce our agricultural land. And again, most climate strategies actually assume that we're going to do that, or, or, or not assume, but hope we're going to do that. Well, then we still have land available. Now the question is, how do you use it? Well, most of the time, if you just let that land regrow as forest for about 50 years, you're going to get more carbon savings than using that land uh, for bioenergy. So, so there's still, that doesn't mean that land is free for bioenergy. It just means you have a choice. And then the way to think about it, this is that, okay, let's even assume that the bioenergy might be a little bit better. Let's say you have fantastic high energy crop yields and they're better than growing a forest. Well, the point is that if you have 100 acres of land, you'll still be better off if you take one acre of land and use it with a solar technology and reforest 99, getting the same amount of energy than if you devote 100 acres to, to bioenergy. So the point is there's always an opportunity cost. You devote a hectare, an acre of land to uh, bioenergy, the cost is not using it for something else. And if you, if this is not unrealistic. So the entire East Coast of the United States not the entire, but most of it, was deforested about a little over 100 years ago, 140 years ago. And it regrew due to two changes. One was the expansion of agriculture in the Midwest, which basically outcompeted agriculture in the East Coast. 
And the second is the decline of bioenergy. Because <laughs> we used to cut down a huge number of trees for all kinds of purposes, uh, home heating, but also charcoal production for steel, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, by not using that land for those purposes, the forest regrew and they sequestered a lot of carbon. And in fact, uh, forest growth in the US is helping to hold down climate change. So the key point, it's all a very simple point. Every acre of land has an opportunity cost, that's it. And you count the, you can devote that land to bioenergy, but then the cost is not using it some other way. And it's, and it's just not worth it. We can use land, as I said, for energy purposes, the solution is gonna be something that's much more efficient. Bioenergy is just inherently very inefficient at converting solar radiation into usable energy, and B, it competes with an inherently limited and valuable asset, which is not just land, but the land that gets enough rainfall that you can actually grow things well. That's why it was just a mistake. It was a mistake that was made because people treated land as free. Now, it's, it's an interesting mistake because not all mistakes turn into policy. And I, I, I mean, I guess the explanation is kind of obvious, right? There are political interests that want biofuel. We want our farmers to be able to have more markets for their products. So we live here in the Midwest, and that drove uh, policy at a national level. It's interesting because I grew up on the East Coast with a wood-burning stove, and you had the simultaneous culture of ecology, kind of, um, you know, everyone would be environmental-friendly in Amherst going back a long time, but also a lot of people have wood-burning stoves. But it just wasn't anybody's radar screen that this was a problem back in the 70s and 80s. Am I right in your diagnosis that this is simply a kind of power politics writ large? Well, I think, I think there was a genuine scientific mistake, and I can tell you how that scientific error was made. Uh, it was a little bit, this renewable isn't free, but there's another, but I'll come back to that. But it's true that when you have scientists say things all the time, the politicians uh, don't act on. <laughs> in this case, uh, even before anyone was thinking that biofuel would be good for, for climate, Biofuels were being pushed as a way of, of increasing farmer incomes. And there was this kind of silly argument that it was good for energy independence, which was never going to be enough to matter at all. And so we actually had our, bi our original uh, ethanol subsidies going back into the 90s and then the early 2000s that get our first biofuel mandate. Uh, and no one was thinking about climate at all. So I, I grew up in Iowa. So I remember very clearly the um, advent of ethanol. And... You're absolutely right. There was no carbon accounting at that time. Nobody cared or thought at all about that. It was all kind of on the margins. This is another product that nice product that farmers can produce, and also it helps us stay independent of Middle Eastern oil, for example. But I'm curious about your claim, which I, I don't disbelieve. I'm just curious to know the details of, which is that when we switched over to really caring about carbon accounting, some people literally just continued to make the mistake in the way they accounted for uh, the carbon footprint of agriculture or biofuels versus uh, other uses of the lands and uh, of the land. I'm, can you give us a little intellectual history of how that went? Yeah. So the mistake, by the way, is literally there's no cost assigned to land, or another way of saying it is they view all plant growth as offsetting the carbon emitted by burning of the plants, not just additional plant growth, right? So I've already explained a little bit the error, but let me tell you where the source of the error came from, it's interesting. So you have to go back to 1990. In 1990, you had the first international treaty on climate change, and it required that countries report their emissions. That's it, just report your emissions. And they turned to a group of scientists and said, tell us how we should report our emissions. And they said, well, look, 
Think of it as a system, a series of accounts. So in the energy account, you burn coal, you count the carbon released by burning coal. And in the cement account, you count the carbon released by burning cement. And in the land use account, you cut down a tree, you count the carbon in the tree. Now notice there's a little difference here. We count the carbon when we burn coal, not when we mine the coal, but when we burn the coal. For trees, we don't count the carbon when the carbon is emitted somewhere. We count the minute you cut down the tree, when you kind of mine the tree. And that rule was adopted for practical reasons. It was the only way to really keep track of what's going on in the forest. And then they said to themselves, well, wait a second. Now, what if you then burn the tree for bioenergy? Do you have to count the carbon again when it goes up the smokestack? They said, no, that would be counting it twice. We don't want to count it twice. So they said, look, the rule is for bioenergy, count the carbon when you cut down the tree. Now that rule worked for two reasons. One was that the significance of losing a ton of carbon in the forest was exactly the same as the significance of emitting a ton of carbon in the energy account. One ton was one ton. All you did was report it. It was also worldwide. You cut down a tree in the US, you burn it in Europe. Europe actually claims fewer emissions because it replaces coal with the tree. But the US reports more emissions because it cut down the tree and for global accounting, which was the sole goal, it, it worked out. Now fast forward to the Kyoto Protocol and it put a cap on emissions. But there were two big differences. First of all, the cap did not apply equally to land use. And secondly, most of the world wasn't even part of the Kyoto Protocol, including the US. So now there's a cap on energy emissions in Europe, but no cap in the US. So if you cut down a tree in the US and you ship it to Europe, if Europe doesn't count the carbon emitted by burning it, and of course Europe's where it really is emitted, it never gets counted because the US isn't subject to the cap. So what should have happened under the Kyoto Protocols, they said, no, 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 For now you gotta count bioenergy when you burn it because it doesn't, we're not counting it when it's cut down and nobody noticed. They thought, no, no, the rule is we don't care. Bioenergy is carbon neutral. So under the Kyoto Protocol, you could literally chop down the Amazon, turn it into a parking lot, ship those trees to Europe, and Europe would count as 100% greenhouse gas reduction. So that theory got incorporated into all these life cycle calculations for biofuels. It got incorporated in cap and trade systems, and it was simply a mistake that, it, that Bioenergy was never intended to be carbon neutral. It was simply you count the carbon in one account rather than another. But if all you're doing is playing with one account, namely the energy account, you got to count the carbon in that account. So was it was it the case that people with you know well functioning brains immediately spotted this problem because it's kind of obvious, but they just said, "Well, this is not going to be a big deal. We we have this slightly imperfect accounting system. As long as it doesn't go to scale, it's fine." Is that what happened? No, they, they no, they didn't know. I, 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 I don't want to brag, but I'm the first person who figured out where the error was, and that was in a paper in Science in 2008. Wow. And the reason, I think, is that people had this alternative intuition, which was anything that's renewable is free. Plants are free. Just what you said, Corey. Growing plants absorbs carbon. Burning plants just puts the carbon back in the atmosphere. It's a balance. That was not actually the rationale of the intergovernmental panel on climate change for their national account. And they said, no, you count it in the land use account. And, but they had this alternative, inc mathematically incorrect explanation, and that's where the error came from. 
So that's basically, yeah. And I, I only figured it out uh, because I was going back through some older documents. And I said, oh my God, I found, they said, counted in the land. You say, oh, okay, now I understand. And I went and talked to some of the scientists who were around at the time of the Kyoto Protocol. They said, we did that? Oh, we never thought about that. I mean, so here's another simple, simple, simple way of thinking about it. People think that bioenergy is good because it's plants. And growing plants is good. And that's true. Here's the rule. Growing plants is good. Burning plants is bad. And just because you grew them doesn't mean burning them is good. But people think it's all the same thing, blah, blah, blah. No. We, we need to grow plants, but that doesn't mean we need to burn them. So after your science paper, did people immediately grasp the essential point? Or are there still legions of very confused economists and policymakers and, quote, environmental scientists out there? There are hundreds to thousands of scientists who've kind of grasped the essential point, and there are plenty who haven't, and there's plenty of stuff that is completely contradictory. You can read stuff by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and say, oh yeah, yeah, of course this is right. And then they go and they cite a whole bunch of estimates of large bioenergy potential that were based on this accounting error. So that basically they, they, you concede the principle and then you cite something, and part of the challenge is, this is a challenge the IPCC has in general, which is they don't, they don't sometimes they don't even think they have the, the, um, the job, but they certainly don't take the time to evaluate all these modeling studies. So they just say, oh, look, there are, there are, there are modeling studies that say almost no biofuels. There are modeling studies that say huge amounts of biofuels. They throw them all together, and then people naturally tend to kind of focus on the number in between, in the middle, and they don't evaluate whether they were valid or what the assumptions were or whether it was even based on the counting error. But we should trust this kind of process to, for example, estimate the temperature increase from doubling atmospheric carbon because they, they couldn't make equally simple mistakes in that process. Well, I, hopefully they haven't, you know, but it is true that they, I agree with you, even in that day, they tend to put all the, all the studies together. I mean, the, the good news about that is that we know perfectly well that you increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you get a lot of warming. But actually, I think my, my personal view is that they've, well, not just my personal view, it's clear that there has been an underestimate so far of the amount of warming. Warming has been going, at, um, going on at a higher rate uh, than the uh, mid-level estimates by the IPCC. But, but anyway, this, this is, unfortunately, it's, it's really that basic an error. And, uh, and yeah, and you see contradictory views all the time. But, you, but basically, Corey, I mean, you went and talked to somebody who gave you your argument, counter-argument to me, and that's still what people think. And it's just clearly wrong because it treats land as free. And so, you know, it, um, it's a powerful, powerful intuition. And unfortunately, the, the bigger problem than biofuels is just cutting down trees and putting them in power plants. And uh, we're doing that somewhat in the U.S., but Europe is doing that big time. And, and what's happened is that even though most people in Europe kind of realized this was a mistake, uh, it just got a lot of uh, power behind it, and power plants were already doing it, and it's, easy to, it's one of the easier ways to claim you're solving climate change is just cut down trees and putting them in your power plant calling it carbon neutral. So actually it's going on at, at significant scale. When, when, you, when you say put them in your power plant, you're, you're being- Burn them, put them and burn them in your power plant. So what's happened in Europe and to some extent in the US, but more in Europe, is that power plants have literally just said, well, we're gonna uh, replace our coal or even natural gas with trees. We're just gonna cut down trees and burn them. That's absurd. And, 
It is absurd. It is exactly a result of this error in believing that biomass is carbon-free. Wow. I See, I, I thought you were saying that euphemistically to represent cut down trees, plant some nice little corn crop or something, and then pretend that because we're burning, we're making ethanol, we're okay or something. And most of those trees are coming from the U.S. and Canada, where we cut them down and turn them into wood pellets, and then we ship them to Europe. That's insane. What's the carbon footprint of the shipping? Well, the shipping turns out to not to be the big number. The real, the real big number is that uh, turning wood into wood pellets and then burning it into electricity is very inefficient. You lose a huge amount of wood and therefore a huge amount of carbon everywhere along the chain. And then when you burn wood, you burn it at a lower temperature, so it produces less electricity than when you burn uh, fossil fuels. And so the result is, when you count it all, the result is that you're doubling or tripling carbon in the atmosphere for 30, 50 years. Uh, you're increasing carbon for decades to centuries. And 800 scientists wrote a letter to the European Parliament in January of 2018 saying, don't do this. And they went ahead and did it. Uh, they repeated an error they had made before. So this is a gigantic challenge. And, and part of the problem is when you treat biomass as carbon free, you are in effect making it more and more valuable to cut down trees, the more uh, valuable it is to solve climate change. So if you basically say, well, look, we're only gonna give you the equivalent of $20 a ton of climate mitigation of CO2 for mitigating climate, then trees are only so valuable. But if you say, oh, it's $100 a ton, then you say, oh my God, Jesus, I can make a lot of money off this tree if I cut it down and, uh, and burn it. on the mistaken idea that it solves climate change. So this, this very, very, very basic error, this belief that biomass is inherently carbon-free because it starts as plant growth, uh, is now growing. It's going on in Asia, uh, it's going on in Europe, it's going on in uh, parts of the US. Uh, Washington State incorporated this error into its new climate law. Um, it's a huge challenge. And it does, and it derives, as I said, exactly, unfortunately, it derives literally from this mistake at the time of the Kyoto Protocol. So to give you an idea of how widespread this has become, I was speaking with uh, my father's real estate agent in Massachusetts, in Amherst, Massachusetts, again, a very, very green state. And uh, we're talking about how we should handle uh, the renovations of the house, because we want to rent it out. He currently has electric heating, uh, which is thought to be undesirable in the real estate market. And she would suggest we put in a pellet stove uh, to improve things. And when I heard this, I at first thought I didn't quite hear her right, because Amherst, it turns out, has outlawed gas heating because it's a greenhouse uh, producer. Uh, but she's really recommending a pellet stove to improve upon that. And um, you know, I, I, just, I, I just sat there probably for a minute now, here's the irony of that, is that one of the better ways we're going to be able to solve climate change is through heat pumps. And heat pumps are 300% efficient. So for every unit of energy you put in, you get three times that amount of energy out in the form of heat. So actually, electric heating is now, in the old days, you know, uh, resistance electric heating was terribly inefficient, right? That's probably, if you have an old house, Corey, that's probably what it was. But actually putting in a heat pump is extremely efficient. Uh, so I'm, so I'm not familiar with the technology. Can you ex explain it to us? So heat pumps are basically reverse air conditioners. 
So, uh, you know, an air conditioner basically just uses compression to uh, move heat from the inside of the house to the outside of the house. Uh, it's not creating heat, it's just moving heat around. And a heat pump does the opposite, it goes in the opposite direction. And uh, because you're basically using electricity to compress and then release heat somewhere else, you can actually end up getting a lot more heat uh, than you're putting in in the form of energy, or energy in the form of heat than you're putting in. So it's about a 300% efficiency. Now in the past, heat pumps were, um, were uh, uh, they weren't quite as good at very low temperatures, but I understand they're getting a lot better, even at very low temperatures. And, you, and if worse comes to worse, you supplement it with a tiny bit of uh, resistance heating for the coldest days of the year. So actually they're very good solutions for, for, for residential heating, they actually are very good solutions. I wanna get your recommendation on policy. You're a critic of biofuels. We think we've made that clear. What would you like to see going forward as regards our energy needs in the U.S. and across the world? And what impact will this have if someone were to adopt your changes on poverty and food availability? Yeah. So, and let me make clear, I mean, I am not really an energy expert. So I'm a land guy and an agriculture guy. So when I'm, I, I can give you my... Um, somewhat better than layman's idea on the energy sector, and then hopefully my uh, uh, expert ideas on land and agriculture. But in the energy sector, um, my basic view is, look, you go all out as fast as you can, as much as you can with solar and wind today. And people say, okay, well, that may not solve the problem completely because we are going to have these um, storage challenges down the road, and my answer is work on storage, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do everything you can now where you can increase solar and wind by a lot without even worrying about storage. So I, one of the things that I'm a big believer in is do the things you know how to do today. Do research for the future, but do the things you know how to do today. So solar and wind are uh, now very cost effective and getting cheaper and cheaper all the time. And combining those with long distance transmission lines. So this is one thing that Bernie had in his strategy was actually to fund these long distance transmission lines. That's something you, we should be going all out today. And uh, similarly electric cars, not because right now a uh, dollar for an electric car is not an efficient way of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but we have to move quickly to having uh, solely electric cars. And heat pumps would be another good example of where you move in that direction. Okay, so that's on the energy side, and then we have to really hope that storage becomes cheaper. Not nuclear? The challenge I see with nuclear is uh, that it's phenomenally expensive. I mean, uh, so you have all the historical challenges with nuclear of you know, the waste, the risk, et cetera, et cetera, particularly the waste, but it's, they're it's phenomenally expensive. And, and it takes years to, to, to get it to work. And everyone says, well, look, there may be, you know, these alternative forms of nuclear that we can, uh, that could work. And I, I would be open to putting money into that research, but, uh, but the big plants have just turned out to be just phenomenally expensive every time someone starts to build them. I think that may be a U.S. centric view because, for example, France gets a lot of its electricity from nuclear power, and I think the Chinese and maybe even the Japanese also are pretty successful with nuclear. So, 
I think in the U.S., because there's some would say an irrational fear of uh, n- nuclear waste and the dangers from nuclear power, that it, it is more expensive. You think it's due to regulation, Steve? Yeah, basically. I mean, I don't think we've built a new nuclear reactor, a functioning one here in a long time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but you know, the UK just is paying for one, and it's phenomenally expensive. And uh, and they were, and then we were subsidizing one uh, here that was abandoned just recently after you know billions of dollars. I I, I mean, there, you know, there's the uh, there are there are ideas for alternative nuclear, and you know, I'm game for for that. I wouldn't shut down nuclear power plants for sure. I mean, I think that's crazy. But uh, I, my feeling is, at least right now. Go all out. Put your dollars as much and as fast as you can in uh, solar and wind, and efficient. Of course, efficiency, which we everyone kind of says as a second thought, but they're huge opportunities. So, how expensive are they, nuclear power plants? Well, they, you know, I, I, I'm not up on it, but they're, you know, uh, I don't know twenty cents more per per kilowatt hour or something. I mean, they're, very, I mean, I, I don't know to be honest, but they, they've been and and they keep coming in over budget. And I mean, as I said, there was a nuclear power plant that was recently banned. I forget where in the southeast. Yeah, I, billions of dollars. I don't know if um, you want to go in this direction, Corey, since we're not really. I think I sense experts on this, but my understanding is that that's a very U.S. centric problem. That in if you ask people in France or in China, they they would say nuclear energy is perfectly viable, actually. So well, we're not going to hang this on Tim since he's a yeah. self-professed. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm 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 open on the nuclear issue, but uh, every time I start focusing on it, that that's the impression I get. But anyway, on the land use side, uh, where I do have some thoughts, well, we had this report with 22 recommendations, uh, big big menu items, the big, uh, only one of which is uh, get out of bioenergy. The, the way to think about it is. Uh, we need to make more efficient use of land. Now that means more efficient diets. So we recommend cutting our beef consumption, which really matters a lot when you factor in land use. Keto uh, Steve, keto Steve, oh, Mr. I, I th- beef. Yeah, I think the paleo keto lifestyle has the maximum carbon footprint because you're you're eating things at the top of the food chain. So is there a, any sort of guilt? Is there a guilt module in your brain that's responding at all to this? You? you know, it's interesting. I should sit down. I've never sat down and calculated uh, relative to, say, my driving habits, how big my change in diet uh, is in terms of carbon footprint. So um, because you're doing one thing that's bad, you haven't bothered to do something that might be smaller and yeah, bad too. Okay. Well, Steve, are you eating beef or are you eating other meat? No, I'm mostly eating chicken and fish. So it's in that sense, I'm not I'm not eating like uh, Kobe beef every night or anything like that. But but definitely compared to someone who is a vegetarian, I can just it's obvious to me that I'm um, using up. I'm I have a bigger carbon footprint. So beef is off the charts uh, in compared to everything else, and a lot of that is due to the huge land use requirements for beef. So I have some papers on that where we basically yeah I don't need a lot of beef actually, but but you do but you do ridicule people who eat soy. I I don't ridicule people, but in fact I I haven't done any research on this. What's and the term I heard? Soy boy. Soy boy. Soy boy. You, but that, you called somebody soy. Boy. But I think that's that, a that sounds like ridicule. Yeah, but that oh it's not ridicule. That's not supposed to be an actual nutritional. It's more of a cultural judgment than a oh, nutritional. Oh, it has no implications for what you might recommend that somebody do. Just calling them that. Well, so there's separate claims. <laughs> so what, there's one claim that you shouldn't eat too much soy because of I guess uh, estrogen-like hormones. Yeah, because you're and, masculine. And this is and this is all kind of like uh, you know like 
bro science nutrition. So I don't really know whether any of this is true. But then there's a second thing that people who do opt to eat a lot of soy tend to be of a certain cultural or personality type. And that's what the joke is more about when you call someone a soy you, Your second appellation was Brooklyn, like people who yes. soy boys live in <laughs> exactly. Brooklyn. Exactly, yeah. A lot of, lot of soy but, boys in Brooklyn. But you know, the biggest development this year was we now have these uh, plant-based hamburgers that taste like hamburgers. Yeah, if you can grow meat directly without having to deal with a cow, and I think that could decrease a lot the carbon footprint of eating meat. Yeah. So they're actually, you know, this company, uh, Impossible Burger, uh, has actually, or Impossible Foods, has made a plant-based burger that really tastes like a hamburger, and, and Burger King, among others, is rolling it out nationwide. And... Uh, uh, you probably can't tell the difference. Uh, so let, and- let me t- jump in. I, th- I think you're right. You can't tell the difference. But as a friend of mine once said, it tastes like beef and it hits your stomach and it feels like vegetables. It's just gone. Right? You don't feel it after you consume it. That, I think, may be an impediment to people who actually really? want the full That's experience. I, I, maybe. You know, it's got plenty of fat in it, so it should be, uh, and plenty of protein. So in that sense... Um, you know, it, it doesn't have more carbohydrate. I'm not maybe true of veggie burgers that have more carbohydrate, but this one really is it, it, it's replicating the the uh, nutritional profile of beef, whatever good or bad. You know, for from for my own personal taste, I think I could be perfectly happy. And at one time, I was almost a vegetarian. I ate only a little bit of chicken and fish, and was mostly eating vegetable protein. But this keto thing sort of forces you, when you cut your carbs, to basically eat tons of meat-like stuff. Yeah. Well, so I think, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I th- really think that is the key on the diet side. I mean, I don't think that um, kind of guilt alone, let alone eco guilt or, is going to drive it. But I do think that when you can get a plant-based hamburger and it tastes exactly like what you want and it's actually cheaper, I think there's a chance a lot of people will switch. And, and will that be a big impact? So that since you said like a third, how much of land is pasture land? It's quite a bit, right? So we have about 3 billion hectares of pasture. So just people who don't know. So there are 800, the continental U.S. is about 800 million hectares. There are 3 billion hectares of pasture land in the world. And over a billion of that was historically forced. And so if you didn't need that billion hectares of land for forest, you could reforest, I mean, for beef, you could reforest it. And that would have a big effect on the climate. Uh, so I, I've, I, I just did a little calculation. I mean, this is, this is extreme, but I estimated that if you uh, reduce global beef consumption by 75% for about 35 years, you could regrow enough carbon to offset about 20% of human greenhouse gas emissions. And, and the thing is that it's not just, uh, the, the real issue is we need both. We're now at the stage where we need to both com- almost completely get rid of carbon from the energy sector, and we need to dramatically reduce the emissions from agriculture, and we need to reforest land. So we need all of the above. And um, a, a lot of climate strategies just kind of assume that this land is available to reforest, but the real world it only becomes available to reforest if we, A, dramatically increase the efficiency of grazing for the beef and dairy we do produce, but like double or triple that, and then B, hold down beef consumption. Uh, so beef in particular, only 20, 25% of the world's population eats a fair amount of beef. That's it. And 
So we basically need that 25% per capita to cut their, its consumption by about half. Yeah, I'm not one of these people, um, but I want to ask a question about people like me who eat a fair amount of fish and some chicken. What fraction of land is dedicated to uh, poultry compared to beef? That's a, a, a very small fraction of land is dedicated to poultry compared to beef. Uh, I've never actually calculated it, to be honest. It's probably, uh, must be in the order of maybe 15% uh, of all crop land, but not of all agricultural land. Just I think you can look up the carbon footprint of like chick, you know, a, a serving of chicken versus beef. It's quite, it's quite a bit lower. So you're definitely better. Yeah, but, but most people who calculate that don't attribute a greenhouse gas cost to the land use. So the same issue happens that we've been talking about in the uh, bioenergy context, the same uh, issue happens in uh, life cycle calculations for diets. But the, so, the way you want to do the calculation, so if I were grazing, suppose I had free range cows grazing right. on a pasture, would you compare that to planting the biggest, most massive trees on all that land if I wanted to? No, I actually had a paper where I basically said, uh, on average, how much carbon have we lost to produce each pound of beef and from vegetation as a global average. And that's, that's the number I'm using. But it almost doesn't matter the details. If you ascribe any reasonable amount of land use cost, uh, it, it, it dwarfs everything else. So, you know, the thing of it is that we have, so the, the, the reciprocal of what I said, which is that roughly a third of the world's um, grazing land was originally forest, is that a lot of what's grazing land was native grazing land. But the problem is we've used that up long ago because there was no alternative purpose for that for humans other than to graze it for, for, for cattle and sheep and goats. So when we expand our beef production, it, it comes at the cost of forest. And so that's the point that, you know, we, we need to kind of hold things down and we, in the end of the day, we're going to still have beef and we're going to still use that native grazing land and we're going to still use um, a lot of waste products for, for feed like citrus pulp and brewer's yeast and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but at the margin, it comes out of forest. And so uh, we basically uh, need to hold down that consumption for that that purpose. So that, that basically means that each of us can actually have a big effect just by reducing our beef consumption. And I have a question about unintended consequences again. If you were to push people away from beef, I understand that moving them to chicken may not have much of an impact. Uh, does moving them to fish have a serious impact on the ecosystem or on uh, carbon production? Yeah. So fish is are interesting. So we, 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 we are dramatically overfishing. That's what I was thinking. And there's huge environmental implications of that. Uh, but in part because of that, uh, all additional fish consumption for the last 20 years has come from aquaculture. So uh, as, we, as the population grows, all of the additional fish have to come from aquaculture. So aquaculture, aquaculture also has environmental effects, although as a whole, uh, it is the greenhouse gas balance of, of aquaculture is more like chicken than beef. Uh, but it still has significant, a variety of significant effects. So the question is, we want to expand our agriculture, we have to do it well. And that means um, 
in, in most aquaculture is actually in, in Asia and it's very low tech and you need to do it in, with circulating ponds and things like that. Uh, ultimately, we probably need to have kind of indoor aquaculture and, uh, and that's a possibility. And then there are other issues related to aquaculture. So one of the issues is that we, um, we actually use a lot of wild fish as food for aquaculture. So there, we can't do that anymore. We have to reduce that to not increase it. That means you have to substitute fish oil. So what, what all fish need is some fish oil. Fish oil actually comes from algae. So actually, when you were talking about algae before, the, the, the most valuable use of algae production is likely to be fish oil. Oh, the fish oil doesn't come from fish? Hold it. Fish oil doesn't come from fish? Is that your... No, the, the fish get it from algae. Interesting. No, produ no production internally. I don't think so. I mean, there may be, I, I don't, there may be some fish that have some, but as a whole, it comes from the algae. And, um, and then, uh, and you can also make a fish oil from a canola oil, uh, a genetically engineered canola oil, and that would be a, a, another alternative. But basically, over time, aquaculture has the potential to be a very efficient form of, of uh, an environmentally beneficial form of, uh, a relatively environmentally beneficial form of animal food. But as you know, there are environmental downsides to aquaculture, right? Aquaculture. And so have you examined sure. those, whether it's waste products from the fish or? Yeah, there are a whole series of them. Uh, you know, it, it uses a fair amount of land. It uh, uses a lot of water. You get uh, uh, diseases on wild fish. Uh, you displace wild fish, particularly in inland lakes with uh, with um, aquaculture fish like tilapia. So there are a huge number of environmental effects, but the, bo the bottom line is producing food has large environmental effects. I mean, you know, that's just the reality. So the goal is to do that with lower environmental effects, but there's no such thing as food production with zero environmental effects. The closest thing to food production with zero environmental effects would now be farm-raised mussels <laughs> because they're filter feeders. <laughs> and they're probably taking excess nutrients out of neutral waters. But that's probably, with the exception of that, <laughs> the goal is just to, to hold down the effect of, to the extent we can. Hey, Tim, we're almost out of time. I, I want to drop one kind of uh, explosive question on you and just see how you feel about it, given that you're an expert in this area. If I let an immigrant into my first world country who is coming from, say, a subsistence farming background, or maybe even he's a hunter-gatherer, and suddenly the week later he's riding around, he's driving around in a Dodge Charger, uh, living a first world lifestyle. Uh, isn't that an incredible increase per capita uh, in our carbon footprint? And therefore, aren't there ethical issues associated with that? <laughs> well, the question. Well, it's true. Every American uh, has, generates a lot more greenhouse gas emissions than pretty much anybody anywhere else. And so if you increase the American population, uh, the cost of that is uh, more emissions. Now, of course, we don't live only for emissions. We live for lots and lots of other reasons. And, 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 and solving climate change is only one of many, many goals. Another goal is to uh, harbor refugees. Another goal is to build our culture. So in the real world, there are all these trade-offs. And, um, you know, that's probably one of the smaller reasons to think about in dealing with our immigration policy. But, 
But uh, yeah, it's true. Every American, it's not just uh, immigrants. Every time you have a kid, right? So uh, the reality is that, and I have two kids, you know. So uh, my hope that my two kids uh, contribute enough to the world to offset their greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but uh, and and of course, I fly around all over the place giving lectures about solving climate change while generating greenhouse gas emissions. So the thing is, there are trade-offs, and and uh, and you know, in the real world, uh, we just have to muddle through. So I was hoping that we'd have time to go into your bio, Tim. But I think we've had such a long discussion, interesting <laughs> discussion about biofuels. To bring us to the end of this program, but I want to thank you for coming on the program. This has been a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. It was real fun. Thanks again.